Welcome to the 11th episode of Bold Time Religion. My name is Jim Swenson. I'm a features reporter at the Telegraph Herald in Dubuque. Today I'm with the retired priest Herbert Pins, who I guess is semi-retired as he just finished with Mass at, here at St. Joe the Worker. Um, how did it go, Father? Well, we had our usual weekday crowd, and um, it was pretty much as normal, just kind of having the usual weekday liturgy, but today was um, a feast day of St. James the Apostle, so it was a little bit of a more important day as far as the liturgy goes today. Okay. Well, I had you answer a few <clears throat> questions for the newspaper article and learned right away that going through your background could probably take up the entire 30 minutes that I normally like to talk to guests. So I'll give you 30 seconds to summarize it. I'm, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, I do know you were born on Christmas in 1944, which I found very interesting. I know one other person, a friend of mine, who was born on Christmas. In fact, her name is Mary, M-E-R-R-Y. Um, could you tell us a little bit about where you grew up and how you got started in the priesthood? Sure. Um, I, I think the most succinct way of approaching that answer is to say that uh, I was raised on a, a, a dairy farm and uh, my parents were very spiritual in their lives. They were very connected to the land and it was just a kind of a normal everyday feature of our life to um, kind of recognize God and our relationship with God in that whole you know, farming setting. Mm -hmm. And most important to me were the facts that uh, we prayed you know, without any kind of uh, burden. It was always easy to pray, and it was insisted that we pray before and after meals, which was a real marker each day. And, of course, Sundays were um, definitely <coughs> on the calendar. We um, always went to Sunday Mass, and that was a, a big time in the week. It was a time for my parents to see their neighbors and to talk with friends and so it was like kind of the main community event of the week. Hmm. So uh, I kind of grew up in that whole setting of Sunday Masses and kind of grew into it. By the time I was in high school, I, I knew that I had other ideas beyond farming um, and certainly was being encouraged, particularly by my father, you know, to find a, a different way to use my talents. And I had teachers, um, in, especially in high school at Xavier High School in Dyersville, who were kind of steering me toward other options. So it really was only about late in my senior year that uh, I thought I would give the seminary a try. Hmm. Did you have many brothers or sisters? I have an older sister, three younger brothers, and one younger sister. So I'm a second child in six. Okay. Did any of them other ones follow any kind of a religious uh, pursuit? No, all my brothers and sisters are married. And, um, you know, kind of in that context, though, I would add that uh, I was with four other priest relatives. So mm. my grandmother's brother was Monsignor Ernest Ament, and my dad had three cousins who were priests. I see. All the Ament's. Okay. So you had some to look up to a little bit, and your dad... Yeah, it, was, it just seemed really so ordinary and natural to be around those priests at all of our, our priest gatherings, and so it didn't seem like a distant thing. Yeah, interesting. Um, and your priest years have been spent in New Jersey, Pittsburgh, Seattle, and Montana. <clears throat> um, I've highlighted a few things from that background that I'd like to talk to you about today. Certainly. Um, 
Your prison ministry is interesting to me, and, and I think it's it's not not all priests do that. That's sort of a, a little out of the ordinary. Uh, could you describe a little bit about how you became involved with that and what it has meant to you? Well, as I put in my notes to you, um, it was almost uh, serendipitous that the bishop tapped me on a Sunday morning and said that I was going to prison and I didn't <laughs> understand why he was putting it that way. And uh, so he filled in the blank that the previous chaplain had died of a heart attack almost a year earlier and so he needed me to cover the the only men's prison in Montana, which is at Deer Lodge. And uh, there are about 1,200 inmates so I, within a year of going to Montana, I was um, doing my training and my entry into the prison setting and wound up for six consecutive years doing hospital, I mean, doing that prison ministry. And it was, um, it was most interesting to me because, you know, I had a, an office in the middle of the prison and inmates could... Uh, put up kites, which are requests to come and see me, hmm. and they could come from their units and sit and talk. So that was predominantly the way I met the inmates. But I also, on Saturday mornings, had uh, a walk to the maximum facility, which was in a whole separate area, and I would spend the entire Saturday morning sitting at the, um, the food slots of the inmates and talking to these guys uh, in their cells hmm. because they weren't allowed out. Oh. So, um, you know, I got to meet the inmates, you know, in their own settings. And I had free run of the prison. I could go anywhere I wanted. So, uh, so I used to find them, you know, in the yard or go into their blocks and sit in the blocks with them and talk with them. Uh, and I really felt, you know, that I had to do the approach, that I had to get out to them. Hmm. Uh, and I, I would echo the words of our present Pope Francis who says, you must smell like the sheep. <laughs> so, so I tried very much to get as close to these guys as I could. Well, I envision some, my vision is uh, Jesus going out and, and going to the, the, the hard side of our culture, the, the people who have had challenges, who maybe have sinned a little bit more severely where they have to be put in places like this. Did you ever feel like um, you were doing even a more personal mission regarding Jesus, or was it... Um. Well, I have two responses. One is um, on Saturdays uh, in the afternoon, I had masses, one for the low side and the other for the high side. They weren't allowed to be mixed. Um, but I, I spent the most of my Saturday afternoons doing Bible studies or scriptural studies and had the inmates come to sit with me around the table and kind of discuss the scriptures. So that was maybe the best teaching moment in uh, the prison setting. Um, the other thing is um, my own insistence was uh, to kind of remind these inmates, you know, that they were still in God's eyes. Yep. And uh, I always like to reiterate the words of Helen Prejean, who is a nun who wrote the book Dead Man Walking. And Helen uh, Prejean gave a talk one time in Helena, Montana, and made this great comment. She said, we should all remember that none of us wants to be known only for the worst thing we ever did. Yeah. So I used to remind the felons of that, you know, that, that they shouldn't be reminded 
only of that one thing, but that I was there to uh, remind them of the rest of their goodness and the rest of their lives and to try to help them to place that back in the right perspective. Hmm. Did you ever feel uh, worried at all? I mean, obviously there are guards around and everything, but were there any situations where it's like, God, I'm saying a quick prayer here? Well, I, I think I could only cite two times in my whole time there when I felt physically threatened by an inmate. And I certainly understand, you know, the, the background of why those inmates were the way they were. They weren't kind of in their right mind at the time. Uh, but there was always um, the, the possibility of uh, danger or of violence. Mm-hmm. Um. There's one thing I asked you about, was there a moment that's like, you know, some people say they were, they've been born again. They've, they've had a moment that's like, well, this is like lightning. Um, my own experiences, I do remember a time when it clicked for me that there's nothing I could do. Jesus died for my sins. I, I, I was in college and I just kept pounding myself and I felt guilty. It was the Lutheran guilt and, or whatever. Scandinavian guilt, but I finally, it just rung, it just hit me, and I distinctly remember that moment. I wasn't, like, born again, because I was raised, to, and we prayed a lot and all that sort of thing. And um, you made an interesting comment that you may not, how did you phrase it, that you don't necessarily trust people who claim that they had the exact moment, or you're a little wary of that, or how do you explain that? <clears throat> sure, I... I have a real um, distrust of people who say that there was this one compelling moment when everything changed. Uh, I just think that's very false. Okay. I don't believe from my own spiritual journey that that's normal. Um, you know, I, I mentioned in my comment that that's sort of a Paul on the road to Damascus experience where his life was changed forever. Uh, I have no doubt that that was true for Paul. But my problem with people is that often they get into a false certitude about their faith. And to me, that reflects the fact that they are saving themselves Mm. rather than being humble before Christ and knowing that it's a journey. Mm -hmm. So I would always argue um, that coming to a relationship with Jesus is an unending process and that it doesn't happen all in one moment. Now, to answer your question, uh, I, I would point to two times in my life that really opened my eyes to what was happening. And I cited in my notes that when I was in novitiate, which was the fifth year in my nine years of seminary training, uh, it was a year of silence, a time of contemplation and quiet, and it was an incredible time of uh, grace and blessing to really have to face myself and to look at my life and to be honest about where I was from and where I was going. Mm-hmm. So that year of novitiate was um, kind of an eye-opening experience. The second moment in my life that was so eye-opening was after my car accident. Uh, December 18th, 1973, uh, I was going across the Oakmont Bridge north of Pittsburgh, and as I went through a green light at the end of the bridge to take a left turn. I was hit by a drunk who uh, T-boned me in my driver's side door, 
and I woke up a week later. Hmm. Um, I had 30-some broken bones, and my left arm was shattered. Um, so, first of all, I spent more than three months in the hospital with major surgeries, um, fixing my right knee and uh, fixing my left arm and wiring my jaw and whatnot. And now through the, the three months in the hospital, at first I was unbelievably angry at God and angry at the world and whatever. Um, through the first six months, I had to learn to walk again, and it was fully a year before I could move my left arm and my left hand. Hmm. Through that year, though, um, I had the compelling recognition uh, that I needed to look at my life in a totally new way. And that whole experience of being so broken, you know, and so humbled and so changed from what had been a very athletic and healthy life to suddenly having all of these disabilities uh, was really a time to look at who am I mm -hmm. and what does God want from me and why did God keep me going? Yeah. <laughs> well, I think a lot of people who, um, I've talked to a lot of people who aren't um, necessarily Christians or they're, they, they sometimes don't realize that when you accept Christ, that doesn't mean life gets automatically easy. And the journeys are up and down. I've had, as I mentioned, my first wife died of breast cancer on her 42nd birthday and I had two young boys at home. And that first year and two years, was, I went through the same thing. Your t faith is tested so much. And so to, to hear a priest come out and, and admit you know, that he was mad at God, I don't know. If, I'm sure they would all... Most of them would admit it, but you just don't hear that every day. I think it's um, refreshing to another Christian to hear, you know, that you're human. <laughs> we all go through that. And I, I think I resisted from the very beginning, you know, when I was ordained at age 27. I totally resisted people putting me on a pedestal. I see. I just hated that, you know. It was like I came out of the ordination and people were suddenly looking at me with this deference. Yeah. And I'm demanding, no, I'm still Herb. <laughs> you know, I'm still the same person. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can only change so much. You're, yeah. you're, you're more devoted or more dedicated because you're serving flocks or whatever. You're, you, have to, you have to set an example, but yeah. you're still the, when you go home at, to bed at night, you're still the Herb. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> um, what have been, I mentioned, asked you about some of your joys, and one was very profound about a young man on his deathbed. I mean, you've mentioned that you, as a priest, you're there a lot of times when people are entering the afterlife, and maybe you could explain some of the, I mean, it's not a joy joy, but it's... It's a spiritual joy. I see. And um, the, the one I cited was, you know, compelling uh, as a kind of a statement of love from this young man as I was holding him up um, because he couldn't lay down with his breathing problem. And his parents were just, you know, so frightened, and they were sitting backs to the wall, not knowing what to do. So I sat there on the bedside for about three hours while he died. But I will always remember that, you know, after having gotten to know him over like a two-month period, that in the last breaths he looked at me and he said, Father, just know that I'll be there when you die. That's pretty amazing. I mean, that's a strong faith. And how old was this gentleman? About 35. 35. Yeah, he had cystic fibrosis. I see. But, you know, to fill out that answer, um, you know, over the years, you know, I, I was at 
some horrid scenes like in emergency rooms, having to meet families after someone had been murdered or killed uh, or died in a car accident. And, you know, I remember a case where I went at 2 in the morning to the emergency room and there was a teenager who had jumped off a bridge Jeez. and I had to call the parents, you know, and take them into the room. So there were many different circumstances at which, um, you know, I was there just to support and help people kind of face the, the horrible suddenness of a death. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I certainly have been at the deathbed of, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people. So, you know, I, and I found, you know, as, at first certainly I had my fears about, you know, being in that circumstance. But the more often I was there, the more I felt like I was being blessed. What about joys of the other, like um, baptisms and marriages? And I mean, you've got to have so many memories of that too. Are there any that stand out? Sure, I I have um, you know some some great uh, remembrances of baptisms, especially you know of my nephews and nieces and of family members. And you know there there were some funny experiences at baptisms that will always be in my mind. <laughs> Um, but I, I have always said to people that weddings weren't always the best experience because, you know, it wasn't like I knew what I was doing. I was being told what I should do. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so weddings were maybe not my favorite thing. I see. <laughs> well, um, it'd be hard to, as a journalist, to talk with a priest and not talk about some of the controversies that have happened. Um, you were very open and frank on your, um, answers to me and um, in the written form and um, I guess what I, and I I've sort of take your tack that you, you quote 95 percent I don't know it's a huge number of priests have been fine have been following God's laws and man's laws and all that sort of thing so um, and you mentioned some negative experiences you've had as a priest who's followed when you when you hear somebody say I don't. I'm not a Catholic anymore after what's gone on. I I just I swear off it. How do how do you feel? What's your reaction? Well, I, I certainly have an immediate reaction because um, you know I, I think there's there's kind of a convenient way of bowing out of the church for whatever reason, and uh, I don't accept people quitting God because of the problems in the church. Um, I think what frames my response is a comment that my father made to me when I was in the seminary and I was having some real question marks about people who were you know, teachers in the seminary. And my father made this really profound comment. He said, never let any one person get between you and God. So to people who are concerned about abuse in the church, you know, I would certainly say I'm not you know, in any way trying to... Um, kind of look away or deny what's going on, but I, I would say uh, take a, a more patient and a more compassionate response, knowing that priests certainly are violating, but no, no more than the national average. You know, it's about the same average as uh, of all men in the whole country. Um, so, so certainly there is a problem, but I... I have felt really abused by 
responses in public where people would approach me with a Roman collar on and, and without even knowing me say, are you one of those abusers of children? And to me, that's a little bit over the line. So um, I just would argue for the fact that people need to still be respectful of those priests who are good, who are dedicated, and who are trying to give everything that is best in them, you know, to the church and to their people. Mm -hmm. And I would say to the people, you know, please don't let us get between you and God. Yeah, yeah I've heard um, some people who are atheists or humanists or will look at Christianity and, and look at the negatives. You know, Christianity does not have a perfect history. Um, the Catholic Church does not have a perfect history. But I look at the millions of people who have benefited from faith and from following God. You can look at it in two different ways. I mean, you, you can look in your own family. <laughs> Every family has their people that are bad, and you can dwell on those or you can dwell on the other. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I understand where you're coming from, and um, I've had to defend Christianity myself. Yeah. Another comment that's kind of in the same vein is as a trained counselor and as a priest, I always try to tell people that God came not just to save the part of me that I like. God came to save even my dark side. And so I would argue to the very end that God is trying to save the church not just those who are good, but even those who are gross, terrible sinners. So it's in God's, God's purview to take care of that dark side of humanity. Yeah. Well, that's just it. I mean, Jesus said, take the, the, the lumber out of your eye. or you know, It's just, it's just yeah. that it's such a personal one. I know where people, priests are trusted, and abusing children is one of the worst things. So it's, just, it's such an emotional thing that people sometimes don't look at the whole picture I don't think right um, what do you I I was a Catholic for about 15 years um, and I there were, I found some pros and cons coming from Lutheran um, one of the cons I just see it from looking out from looking outside in especially with the um, the dying number of priests you know there aren't as many is that should priests someday will they allow them to be married or can women be priests I almost look at it someday the Pope will get a message and I don't want to make this sound sacrilegious but I think that's how it's going to happen I mean <laughs> they're going to need more priests what's your viewpoint on the future of <laughs> well let me begin with um, kind of a, a sacramental comment or a theological comment in Catholic theology, we say that at the sacrament of baptism, when we are starting our spiritual life, uh, that is uh, acceptance into the priesthood of Christ. So first of all, I would say that every Catholic who is baptized already shares in the priesthood of Christ. Okay. And we've always said that in, for example, emergencies, any Catholic can baptize another person. So the, the priesthood element is there already. And I think through tradition we have failed to recognize 
how the Holy Spirit can be working through every person. So I, without going into a long uh, kind of historical review of that, I would simply say that we have a lot of baggage that we need to get rid of. And it's, uh, the problem comes down to people arguing the way it was a thousand years ago versus what did Jesus intend. Yeah. So uh, I, I think we have to reclaim the intention of Christ and look at the early church and notice that Paul was always um, complimenting the women leaders of communities um, <coughs> like Priscilla and, and saying you know, that he needed those women in leadership roles. And as I remarked in my written comment, I, I feel like the priesthood is already extant among our religious sisters among the nuns, and some of the very best spiritual advising I've ever gotten was from sisters. So in that whole fact, though, um, I cherish the fact that the nuns will tell me, but we don't want to be made priests like you are. You know, We don't want to be priests with all of that baggage. We don't want to be priests with all of those traditional trappings. And I fully agree, because I think we need, even for men, you know, to get rid of a lot of the wrong trappings of priesthood and to really get back into the heart of it. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, with you, I believe that the future uh, will require that we first kind of look at how we better invite women into leadership roles and how do we empower them to be equal in every way. Uh, but the final comment has to be, how is the Holy Spirit working, and why can't we see that among women? Um, one of the things I, I'm very, uh, I t think about a lot, and I've read a lot about, um, is heaven. And it's fascinating to me all the different viewpoints that people have on it. Um, some people believe everyone's going to go to heaven. Some people believe um, they would not believe a God who would not allow someone to go to heaven or I've been asked so potentially the the sinner the the criminal on Christ's right side who's just had a horrible life let's say could go to heaven but Gandhi who doesn't believe in Jesus won't how do you look at heaven have you thought I mean obviously you're a priest you must think about the afterlife in heaven um, do you do you think it's as literal as Jesus said, believe in me and you'll go to heaven or not? Or how do you, are there nuances? Yeah, a lot of nuance to that. Uh, you know, I, I think, again, biblically we should look at the way Jesus spoke. He said he came to bring the kingdom of God. So to me, it's more important to use that phrase than to use heaven. Because I think heaven has a lot of the wrong, you know, mushy, mushy feelings to it. Uh, but the kingdom of God is something that Jesus came to establish and he invited us all to be part of that. And I see all of human life as our looking at and finding out what that means. How do I become part of that kingdom of God? So I would rather see everything as a continuum. You know, that we grow through a whole lifetime uh, into this sense of the kingdom of God... And at the moment of death, we just graduate into the real one, you know, mm -hmm. into the, the, the capital K, kingdom of God. Yeah. So, um, 
and as your question is placed, I think it's convenient for people to kind of refuse to see their responsibility and to say, I think God's going to take care of everything. You know, I just think that that's morally, well, it's more amoral, you know, that people think that there's nothing that we have to do, that God is going to be so good that nothing will happen. I, I think that, you know, from the argument of the nature of God, that uh, God has to be a just God, and God has to uh, recognize what is good and has to detest what is evil. So uh, in my own life, God is always recognizing what is good in me, but also detesting what is still evil in me. So my responsibility is to get myself together and make myself more ready to embrace the kingdom of God here and in the future. What about hell? Um, well, that'd be like the prison at Montana. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I think, uh, again, that you know, if we believe in angels, we have to believe in demons. And if we believe in a heaven, we must believe in a hell. And that's the hardest thing, I think, that yeah. the, the younger generation um, is, it's, you know, I, I heard an atheist make a very good case that a lot, of, a lot of Christians are only Christians out of fear. And that was a hard one to argue against because there's, I mean, the fear of God is part of the Bible. It's been, it's a phrase that's, I, I'm, unless I've been taught wrong, even Jesus said fear the, you know, but it's a healthy fear, I think. It seems like it's a fear that you know what God could do. He's God. How can we decide the type of God we want to follow? God is God. So theoretically, he could put us all into hell. I mean, he is God. So I, I just kind of, uh, I'm fascinated by that whole uh, thing about where people say, well, my God, a God I worship would never put anybody to hell. So... Well, let me pick up on your phrase, fear of God. Uh, so much of the Bible does not translate well in English. Sure. And um, the Aramaic is often much more clear. Uh, and fear of God, as we speak of it, was really a matter of respect of God. You know, know who you are in front of God. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't anxiety, and it wasn't what we call fear. So, you know, I, I think... The healthy way of looking at that phrase is that we should all begin from humility. We should all recognize that, you know, before God, we are the creature and he is the creator. And it just seems like you can see that when you, on a sunrise or riding through the forest or, I mean, it just, to me, it just, there's so much evidence. And, uh, I mean, I'm sure you've seen that yourself. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, it's sad if people have to live on that level of fear and anxiety. You know, that it's not where we should be living. No. I, I like how you said the respect. I think that's that must be the way I, I view it because I, I don't walk around thinking, you know, I, I stubbed my toe and I swore today I'm going to be in trouble. But it is, it's a respect, yeah. It's like I always refer to it as when you're a child and you respect your father. You know, you're not sure always why he's doing certain things for you because you can't comprehend his mm-hmm. level of intelligence, and yeah. so I look at it that way. 
a way of amplifying that maybe is um, to draw upon my um, my great uh, enjoyment of Thomas Merton, the monk mm-hmm. of Gethsemane, Kentucky. Uh, I did my master's thesis at DePaul University on Merton, and specifically on his uh, idea of true self. And his comment is basically that each of us is small t, small s, true self. And God is capital T, capital S, true self. And we are each created with the image of God on our hearts. So the challenge of my life is to find how my little t, true self, needs to be like the capital T, true self. Interesting. Well, I think uh, that's but I'm about running out of time. Um, I don't know if there's anything else you wanted to uh, leave listeners just in uh, synopsis. It's hard to kind of sum up a conversation like this. But, yeah. Well, uh, you know, one thing I was thinking of this morning <coughs> as I came over was um, I am part of a ecumenical discussion group that meets the second Sunday of every month at St. John Episcopal Church in Jackson Park. Okay. And I would welcome anybody who would like to be part of that discussion group uh, to come and join us as we discuss the different, you know, books that Merton wrote. So um, right now we are uh, discussing No Man is an Island. Mm. But we have people from many different churches already coming, and we would welcome more people. All right. Well, that sounds great. Okay, well, I want to thank uh, Father Pins for a wonderful discussion during my 11th monthly episode of Bold Time Religion. To find more of our podcasts, go to www.telegraphherald.com slash podcast. Thanks again, Father.